Grace Fellowship and uh, Encounter Church. Good to see everyone. Uh, this is the perfect time to do a joint service, isn't it? In July when people are here and there and everywhere, rather than have one small service, let's all come together. So let me begin by, by praying for us before we look at God's Word. Lord, thank you so much for sweet fellowship and for joy and um, the encouragement you give us as we gather together as your people. Um, as was already said, Lord, every uh, good gift that we have is from you, and not just the material things, but these relationships that we have. Lord, thank you for the gift of people in our lives who, who love us and, and care for us. And now, Lord, as we look at your word, we thank you that you have not left us without instruction, Lord, that you have given us your very words so that we can know how to live and how to walk in a way that would please you. And so, Lord, we open the scriptures, we open these words of Jesus this morning with great expectation. Lord, we don't open it like some book that we're not sure what it's going to say, but we open it ready to hear from you and ready to be changed. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that in us this morning, that you would change us by the power of your word. I confess, Lord, my inability to fully understand things here, let alone to communicate them. And so I pray for your grace and for your guidance and your leading. I pray for your spirit to fill me and to fill each of us as we look at your word that you would guide us into all truth. Lord, you have promised to do that. And so we ask, we plead that you would do that for us, even now. And ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to John chapter 13. John 13. We'll be at the end of John 13 and into all of John chapter 14 this morning. If you have one of the Bibles here on the chairs... Um, you can go to page 1673, and that'll get you to John 13, 1673. So let me begin with just two notes of thanks. Uh, one, on behalf of Grace Fellowship Church, thank you for your hospitality, for your generosity to us each week. Whether you know it or not, we're here from about 3 o'clock, well, 2 o'clock, we show up and start practicing music, from about 2 o'clock to 6 or 6.30 until Carrie kicks us out when the youth show up. Um, but we are so thankful that you have welcomed us so warmly um, and allowed us to use this space and then also invited us to be a part of these um, joint services. I guess this is our the fifth one that we've done now after the, the ones in October and November. So on behalf of Grace Fellowship, Fellowship Church, thank you so much. Um, and second, not as a the pastor of Grace Fellowship, but as a friend of Michael, let me say thank you for blessing him and his family with the sabbatical. Um, our church blessed me with that a year ago, and um, it's a wonderful thing. I know it's hard. It's hard not to have him and his family here, and it means that there's probably some slack that's got to be picked up, which is good, right? But I just want to say thank you as a friend of the Bames that you this is this is good. If it's hard, it's a blessing, and you will see fruit in his life and in your church because of making that sacrifice. So thank you. Um, as a church that found itself without a building, uh, back in February, we began a study through the book of Acts. Uh, we started that study in part to seek to understand and to study the the origins and the, the core mission 
of the church, to understand what we as God's people in the world are called to do and to be. So we wanted to be asking ourselves questions, who and why questions about who we are, as we were thinking about the where question of where we would eventually land and where we will eventually land. Uh, We've been away from that series for about eight weeks uh, for various reasons, but Lord willing, on July 15th, not next Sunday, but the following one, we'll be back here at three o'clock and we're going to resume our study in the book of Acts. And so as I thought about how to serve both Encounter Church and Grace Fellowship Church um, in these two weeks, my mind went to John 13 through 17. Uh, It's a passage of scripture that contains the words of Jesus that were meant to prepare his followers to live without his physical presence in the world, but rather with his abiding, uh, the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit in the lives of all believers. It's a passage that informs much of what we read in the rest of the New Testament, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, but it's also just deeply encouraging and practical teaching for all of us who live in this time period when Jesus is not physically present with us, but we are longing for his return. How do we live in the midst of that? Uh, John 13 through 17, some of you probably know this, is often referred to as the upper room discourse. Uh, It's just a title that's put on those those chapters. Uh, Just before these chapters, to give you some context for what's happening in the book of John, uh, just before that, in, in this book, we find in John's narrative that opinion about Jesus has become more sharply divided than it had ever been, in large part because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this caused strong division. The religious leaders are jealous of his growing popularity. They are angry that he is claiming to be the Son of God, and they are ready now to go as far as to kill him to stop this whole thing from continuing. In fact, John 12.10 tells us that they're so desperate, they're so angry that they're going to kill Lazarus too because he's causing everyone to start following Jesus. So tension is rising in the narrative. And with the tensions rising, and that the way, the way the world was either seeking to kill Jesus or to crown him as king, we find in chapter 12 that Jesus announces that his hour has come. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, I encourage you to do that. If you read through it, you're going to find that at various points we're told by John and by Jesus himself that his hour had not yet come. Different things occur, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Or or John will say they could not lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And the culmination of that is in chapter 12, verse 23, where Jesus announces, he says, that the hour has arrived. My hour has come, and he calls it the hour of his glorification. The hour of my glorification has come. And ironically, when Jesus speaks about his glorification, what he's primarily talking about in this context is his humiliation through death on a cross. Surely his glorification would also include his resurrection, his ascension into the, to the Father's right hand, and even the future return of Jesus, which are all part of what what Jesus does to accomplish our salvation. Um, But at the center of this, uh, at the center of Jesus being glorified, is Jesus being crucified. And so it's in this shadow of tensions about who Jesus is. It's in the shadow of the coming crucifixion and of Jesus' departure that John records for us what he does in John chapter 13 through 
17. We're reminded as we look at this that the cross was not a, a surprise to Jesus, but rather it was the culmination of his, his whole mission as the Savior of the world. That's very clear right at the beginning of this in John 13.1. Just look at that one verse. Now before the feast of Passover, John 13.1, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. One of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John. So Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen. And following uh, that verse, we see that in the shadow of death and in the, the knowledge of his coming departure from the world, Jesus provides this shocking example of, of humility and service. And what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. And then he says to them in John thirteen fourteen, If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. After that deep expression of love, he speaks openly about the one who's going to betray him, about, about Judas, which then leads Judas to leave and head out into the night. Just to take note, Judas is there for the washing of the feet. Jesus washes Judas's feet. But then when Judas leaves, you notice there in verse 31, when he, that's, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And this begins the, the bulk of the teaching. In that transition now, this, I'm getting, this is to get you all to verse 31, okay, so that we can see the context. This is the transition, and the transition here is it's a clue that this instruction is meant for the true followers of Jesus. Judas is gone, so now Jesus is going to teach his disciples about what it means to follow him once he leaves. And so I say that in part to say that my words this morning are primarily aimed at those of you who have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as Savior. Those of you who have admitted, those of us who have admitted our inability to save ourselves and believe that Jesus has taken the punishment upon himself through his death and that he's given us his righteousness so that we can stand before him on the last day and be found to be children of the Father. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he offers forgiveness to all. And when we receive that gift of salvation, it changes us completely. And so we find then that these teachings of Jesus show us what that change is going to look like in our lives, specifically now that Jesus is not here. So, having said all that, let's read the passage. I want to read John thirteen thirty one all the way to the end of chapter 14, verse 31. It's a long passage, and so let me give you some things to look for as we read, okay? Uh, it's going to be helpful to note four statements or four questions of four different disciples, okay? So as we read this, you're going to see um, Peter, Thomas, Philip, and Judas, not Iscariot, say something. Note what they say, because that's going to shape what we talk about. Another thing, if, if you can multitask and think about more than just that, uh, you might note, are there any specific commands that Jesus is giving? And then this passage is filled with promises. And so you'll see those things as well. So hear these words of Jesus given to each of us. What a gift. John 13, beginning in verse 31 when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. When I leave the house, whether it's in the morning or to go to work or to run some sort of errand or to go on a more extended trip, I have seven people to say goodbye to, uh, which is a wonderful thing, though it means that I need to start the goodbye process a little bit in advance of when I need to leave the house. And during this routine, as I tell my family that I'm leaving, one of them will invariably ask, where are you going? And when I answer them, if I happen to be going somewhere that they want to come along, often they will say, can I come too? And if I say no, they will say, why not? (laughs) Those conversations, I think, are not unlike the conversation that's happening in John 13, 31 through 1431, though, of course, it's on a much larger and more significant scale. Uh, we see in John 13, 1, that Jesus' coming departure is on his mind, and he makes it clear that he is soon going to be leaving his disciples. And as he does that, they ask very similar questions. Where are you going? Can we come? Why can't we come with you? But also questions that reveal their hearts in a deeper way. And to use Jesus' phrase, we find out that their hearts are troubled. They're afraid. They're confused about what this is all going to mean. And out of the abundance of those fearful, worried hearts, their mouths speak and ask certain questions. Put yourself in their shoes. This is the man that they have followed for years now, not just days or months, Years they've been walking with Jesus. This is a man who they left everything to follow. This is the man that they assume is the long-awaited Messiah that's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And now he's telling them that he's leaving. And in fact, even before they can ask, can we come too, he says, you can't come. And Jesus isn't just kind of going across town and they're not allowed to come with him. He's not going to Home Depot like I might and say, you guys stay here, I'm just going to get it done faster without you. Okay? He says in verses 31 to 33 that this is about his glorification. This is about him going to the cross. This is about him going to the grave. This is about him then ascending to the Father to be at his right hand up until this moment even. We can relate to this sort of pain and this confusion because we've we've all felt that, not just when someone's leaving our presence. Maybe you felt that as someone is leaving the house. Maybe parents, you've had a 
a child go off to, to college and you're not allowed to go with them. You know, you have to let them go. And that's difficult, even more so and probably more akin to what's happening here. We've all in some ways watched someone that we know and love move from this life to the next. Death brings separation. And no matter how much we want to be with them, we can't follow them. And that's hard. It's distressing. It's, it's heartbreaking. And that's what the disciples are, are feeling here. And Jesus knows that this is coming, and he knows it's going to be hard. And so he wants to talk to the disciples about what things are going to be like once he leaves. And the key part of what he wants to communicate to them is this call for them to love one another in that same kind of self-sacrificing love that he just showed them at the beginning of chapter 13. He's going to instruct them, and he says that this new commandment in verses 34 and 35, that they would love one another as he has loved them. And that's one of the key things that he wants to bring out. But that's a theme that he's actually going to have to revisit later on in the discourse. If you notice in chapter 14, he doesn't talk at all about this idea of loving one another. That's not even really on his mind because it's not on the disciples' mind. He makes these statements. He says, I'm leaving and you cannot come, therefore love one another. And the disciples say, wait a minute, you said you're leaving and we can't come with you? Let's focus on that before we get to this whole love one another part. And that's what they're concerned with here in chapter 14, is that Jesus is leaving. The concern of the disciples is our concern as well. How do we live as Christians without Jesus present with us? If we're followers of Jesus and we're members of his kingdom, what does it look like to follow Jesus when he's not here? And what does it look like to be a part of a kingdom that is invisible? We know that there's a day when Jesus will return and we will be able to be with him. But what about right now. How do we live in this in-between time where Jesus is not present with us, but we are waiting for his return? And I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples here and what he's trying to communicate to us as well. Here's what I think God's word is saying to us in one sentence in these verses. As we wait for the return of Jesus, we trust in his plan and power. I don't think that encapsulates it all, but it's my best shot. As we wait for the return of Jesus, we trust his plan and power. Jesus here is calling all who are his disciples, all who are his followers, all who believe in him to trust him. If you read again, if, I, if you read the book of John, you can look for those, uh, his hour has not yet come. But if you just skim through the book of John and you look for everywhere where it talks about believing or belief, or a call to believe. It's a great, simple study. Because this idea of believing is key throughout the book. And John says, you probably know this, at the end of chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. Why did he write it? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And here he keeps this idea of this theme of believing and trusting going. So as we wait for the return of Jesus, we have to trust, we have to believe his plan and his power. The Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of faith from beginning to end. It never ceases to be anything but a life of faith. And what Jesus calls us to do here is to believe. It's the key command in 
Let not your hearts be troubled. What? Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then at the end of the passage, he he brings this up again. Verse 27 of chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. That same phrase again. Don't be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. It's even in the middle of the passage. Verse 12, whoever believes in me. This idea of belief is key. How do we live without Jesus in the present? How can we have hearts that are not troubled and afraid? We believe in God and we believe in Jesus. We trust his plan and we trust his power. But what does that kind of trust look like? If I just say, believe. I mean, Macy's puts that out on their store, right? Christmas time. Believe. Believe what? And what does that belief look like? And I think that's what is being spelled out here in this passage. What does it look like for us to believe? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning and also next week uh, thinking about. The goal was to just spend this morning, but um, it went over. So we'll do it next week too. What does it look like to believe? Um, And I want us to think about it as it relates to the four different responses from these four different disciples. And as we look at these men, I want you to ask what their words reveal about their hearts. How do their statements and questions show what they're struggling with and what they're fearful about? And in asking that question, I want us to ask, how do we struggle with the same things now that Jesus is not with us? What are we scared of? What do we struggle to understand without Jesus present with us? What are the fears that we have? And I want to admit right at the beginning that I find this passage extremely hard to understand. When Jesus, when they ask Jesus questions, I don't feel like he answers their questions, <laughs> which Jesus seems to do a lot. Someone would ask him a question and he tells some story and you say, what does that have to do with the question that was just asked? And so I confess to you that on Tuesday when I read through John 13 to 17, at first I said, this is going to be great. And then I said, I don't really, I've, I've wanted to teach on John 13 through 17 many times and then said, this is too confusing. I can't do it. And so I, I say that right at the beginning, which maybe, you know, people would say, don't say that. But what I'm saying is I don't have all the answers. I want to invite you to wrestle with me on this passage because I think it is a really deep, encouraging passage, but it's just going to take all of us putting our heads and our hearts together to understand what's going on here. So I'm not standing up here saying, this is exactly what's going on here. This is exactly what... I'm confident of what I'm going to say. Um, But I want to invite you into the wrestling match of John 13.31 to 14.31 with me. So wrestle with me, okay? Um, We're going to wrestle with these these individuals. We'll look at Peter, and we're going to look at um, Thomas, and also Philip. And then we'll come back, because Jesus says a lot after Philip's questions. So we're going to think more about Philip next week. But let's begin with with Peter's question. Not surprisingly, Peter is the first one to speak. If you know anything about Peter, it's not a surprise that he's the first one to talk in this situation. So if you're taking notes and you, I didn't give you any points on your notes, you could write this, Peter, and maybe a dash, trust God's timing and work. 
Peter teaches us that we need to trust God's timing and we need to trust God's work. Again, we're asking, how do we live without Jesus present with us as we wait for his return? And it's to believe. What does that belief look like? It looks like trusting God's timing and God's work. So Jesus begins verses 31 to 33, speaking about his glorification, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's told them um, that this is coming. And we see in other Gospels that when Peter first hears this, you remember that, that he doesn't like this idea. And he steps in front of Jesus and says, this is never going to happen, Jesus. You are not going to die. And you remember Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Because Jesus, for Jesus to never die would mean that he never accomplishes our salvation. So Peter doesn't understand the plan yet. He's slowly coming to grips with it, but he doesn't get it. In fact, none of the disciples did. If you read the Gospel of, of Mark, it's interesting how they understand so much about who Jesus is up until the middle of chapter 8. But then you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and it's as if they go into more and more confusion about what he has come to do. They get that he's the Messiah. They don't understand this whole suffering servant thing. And that's sort of what's happening here. And who can blame them? I mean, that's hard to grasp that Jesus' glorification is actually his crucifixion. It's hard to understand that the, the path to glory always leads through the valley of the shadow of death and even through death itself. But death leads to spiritual life. Physical death is what opens the door to eternal glory. Suffering and pain bring growth and glory. It's hard to swallow. We don't want to have to swallow it. But we should never expect that if we want to be glorified, and if we want to glorify the Father, that we're going to find any other way to do that other than walking the same path that Jesus did, which was through suffering and death. So Peter rebukes Jesus. But he says here that, and he says that Jesus would, would never die. That, that was the, the, in the past, not here. He rebukes Jesus and said, you're never going to die. But here, what does Peter say? He asks, where are you going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter says, I know where you're going. You're going, you say you're going to do this whole crucifixion thing. So Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, Peter isn't saying, Jesus, you're not going to die. Peter is saying, I will die. And I will die for you. Jesus, I will be your substitute. Peter is obviously distraught at the fact that Jesus is going to go somewhere that he can't go. And he doesn't understand the plan. And he's impatient. He's impatient with the timing of things. And he's impatient with his inability to do anything about it. He wants to do something. I want to stop this, Jesus. I don't want you to go away. So I will die. I'll die for you. I, I love that Jesus assures Peter that he's going to follow him. But he says, it's not now. Later. Later is a hard word, isn't it? When do we get to eat the ice cream? Later. <laughs> when, um, when will I know if I got the job? Later. When will I get the test results? Later. When will we get to be with you, Jesus? Later. And so Jesus, or Peter responds the way all of us would. But why can't we go now? I want to go with you now, Jesus. 
Peter's a man of action. He wants to do something to speed this process along. He says, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Anything to save you. Anything to be with you. He promises that he will die. And, and then later on, we see Peter's a man of action in the garden. What's he do? He pulls out the sword and he chops off the, the ear of the servant. Because he wants to do something. i got to stop this. I think as we wait for Jesus, we can become preoccupied with what we need to do. What do I need to do? How, how can I move things along? How can I speed up this whole process? But to focus on our works is to misunderstand our sinfulness. It's to misunderstand our deep need. Peter can't die for Jesus. He can't even die as a substitute for himself. He can't die for his own sins. He says, Jesus, I'll die for you. And, and Jesus tries to help him understand what he said because he repeats the question word for word. Will you lay down your life for me? You're going to lay down your life for me, Peter? Christ has in, enabled us by faith to do what he asks us to do. And Jesus is going, but Jesus is going to make it clear in John chapter 15 that apart from him, we can do nothing. Unless we are abiding in Jesus, we can do nothing. And Jesus is helping Peter see when he restates that proclamation. Will you lay down your life for me? He's saying you can't do that and you won't do it. In fact, Peter, you're going to do the exact opposite. You're going to deny me three times before the day is over. He wants Peter to see that as much as his intentions are, are good. I want to save you, Jesus. I want to be with you. I want to do something. Jesus says, you can't do anything. And I have to do this to enable you to do anything. As we wait for Jesus, as we live in this time when he's not present with us, as he will be one day, we are not called to focus on what we can do for Jesus. As if our works are going to bring him closer or bring him sooner. In fact, Jesus, I think, simplifies the idea of works for us back in chapter 6. The crowd say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Good question. I think Peter was like, yeah, that's a good question. I want to hear what Jesus says. What do we need to be doing? Jesus answers them in John 6. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Belief. Faith. We want to do something, and Jesus says, no, believe. The work of God is to believe, to trust. That's what he says in John 14, 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. And after that, Jesus in, in chapter 14 at the beginning there, he goes on to talk specifically about his father's house and the many rooms that are there for all of God's children. It's a place when everyone finally comes home and there's space for everyone. As our family grows and we try to do um, family vacations with extended family, we are having trouble finding a place that will fit us all. You know, Airbnb only has space for so many kids and so many adults, and there's only a you know small number of homes before we need to rent a hotel or something. I don't know. But that's not an issue in the Father's house. In the Father's house, there is room for everyone. And so as we wait, we're trusting God for this future reunion at his house that is is coming. And we trust a few things. Let me just give you a, a few concrete things that we trust. We trust that there is room for everyone. That there's room for everyone. All of God's children are there because Jesus is preparing it for us. 
He's going away and he's preparing a place for each and every one of us, a room in this house. I remember a popular Christian song. I just remember that I looked it up because it was just vague in my mind. And it was about this guy going to heaven and he was being shown his home. And it was just this little shack and he was confused. And so he talks to Simon Peter and Peter says, that's all the lumber that you sent. Does anyone else remember that song? That's all the lumber you sent. That is completely ridiculous, okay? The Father is not waiting for you to do good works to send him lumber to build your room. The room that Jesus is building for you is all of grace. And it's all because of what Christ has done for us. When we start to think that we need to do good works to make our mansion bigger or something like that, we are thinking completely like Peter, what do I need to do to make things better, to be with you? We're not called to do that. We're called to walk in the ways of Jesus, but we do it by faith. And we do it for God's glory, not as a way of earning favor with the Father. So we trust that there's room for all because Jesus is building our room for us. We trust that Jesus will come and take us to himself. We trust that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take us back to himself, that he is going to return one day so that where he is, there we will also be. We trust that God will take us to himself because of what Jesus has done, not because of our works. If that's what we're hoping for, then we're going to be very discouraged. And that's what the devil would want for us, which is why I love this quote from Martin Luther, which draws on uh, John 14, where he says, "There, where I am, you, there you will also be. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. It's not about my works. He suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall also be. We trust that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take us to himself. And we trust that he will come at the perfect time. He will come at the perfect time. I'm with Peter. Now would be great. Let's do it now, Jesus. Why can't I come with you now? And that's, that's the longing of all our hearts if we're God's children. I want to be home with the Father. I want to see Jesus. That's a good longing. But we can also wait and we can trust that God knows what he's doing. When we feel like Peter and we're kind of ready to hyperventilate because Jesus is not with us and the uncertainty about just when he's going to return and what it's going to be like, Jesus sort of steps in and tells us to take a deep breath. So let's try this. This is not normal for me. I'm not going to ask you to do any yoga poses after this. But just take a deep breath, okay? I think that's part of what this passage is. So just, I feel like so much of what Jesus is trying to communicate in this is, Peter, breathe. I, trust me, okay? I understand why you feel this way. He's saying this to all the disciples. I understand, but take a deep breath. Don't worry. Trust my timing. Trust my work, that, that you don't have to do anything. Trust that I'm preparing this place for you. Trust that I will return. I love what he says later on. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will take you. I will come and get you. 
And where I am, there you will be also. In this meantime, it's just when we get overwhelmed and we wonder, what do I need to do? And where are you, Jesus? And why can't you come now? And just trust that he's got it under control. So, now it's Thomas's turn to hyperventilate. Because you look at it and, and, and Thomas says, because it ends here in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says, we know the way. We don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way, Jesus? You, you can feel this. You know, Peter is more the man of action and Thomas is kind of, we call him the doubter. Poor guy got labeled with that for the rest of his life. But Thomas is just kind of like, I don't get all the information. What do you mean we know how to get there? And then close on his heels, uh, uh, Philip says to G- that, that asks Jesus to reveal the Father to them. Well, again, we'll say more about Philip next week. But for now, if you're writing notes, you might write Thomas and Philip. So we've seen Peter. Um, and Peter says that we're, Peter teaches us um, that we're supposed to, to trust Jesus. We're supposed to trust that uh, his timing and his work. Uh, Thomas and Philip teach us that we are to trust that Jesus is enough. And relationship is the goal. Trust that Jesus is enough. And relationship is the goal. This is where I need you to really help me. So engage. My, my misunderstanding of this is not a reason for you not to listen, but actually to listen more so that we can have a good conversation. Um, so follow the conversation. Let's read 4 through 11 again. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me on account of the works themselves. So Thomas says, we don't have enough information. And Philip says the same thing, he just says it a different way. We need a little bit more information. Thomas says, we don't know enough. And Philip says, we need to know a little bit more. A few thoughts. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is not just about exclusivity, but about sufficiency. Let me explain that statement. This is not just about exclusivity. Often we go to John 14, 6 and say, Jesus is the only way. He's better than all the other gods that people worship. I totally agree. But I don't think that's Thomas's concern. Thomas isn't going to follow some other god. Thomas wants to follow Jesus, but he just doesn't understand fully what's going on. He feels like there needs to be something more. And Jesus is saying, this is sufficient. I am sufficient. You don't need anything more than me. I am enough to save you. Thomas wasn't looking to other gods. He wasn't looking to other saviors. He was just unclear about the sufficiency 
of Jesus to save. And Philip is rightly looking to the Father, but he's just failing to realize how God was actually working through Jesus. And and next week I want to think about how the way that God was working through Jesus is now, in the absence of Jesus, how the Holy Spirit is working through us. So Jesus makes it very clear. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is the way. He is the way to get to God. The Old Testament is filled with the temple imagery. How do we get back to God? How do we get into the Holy of Holies? It's through this sacrifice. And Jesus is now saying, I am the way. I am the way to get to God. He is the truth. He is the full revelation of who God is. And we're going to read John 1 in a minute, which is what that shows. And He is the life. Remember what had just happened, the miracle in John 11? It's the resurrection of Lazarus. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. And He's reminding them, listen, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You don't need anything else. I am sufficient. And then, so... Another thing that he's, just another note to think about, Jesus is the way back to the Father. Jesus is the way back to the Father. I'm not sure what Thomas is looking for, really. A way to the kingdom, maybe, a way to follow Jesus where he's going. But the end goal of this path is relationship. It's union with Christ and adoption into the family of God. And that's why we have this picture of a big house and not individual houses, Uh, It's why Jesus draws on this idea of not leaving us as orphans, but of restoring our relationship with the Father. And Jesus, faith in Jesus, believing in Him is what brings us into relationship with God and and firmly settles us into it. So what do we want? We want to be with the Father. We want relationship with the Father. What does Thomas want? I want to know the way back to you. I I want to be near you, Jesus. What else is there? And Jesus says, there is nothing else. The way to relationship with me is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the way back to the Father, and Jesus is also the revelation of the Father. He's the revelation of the Father. How can he be the way back to the Father and also the full revelation of the Father? I guess because he's Jesus, but... um, (laughs) This is John 1. I'll save the time and... uh, Read it, but if you go back and read John 1, 1 to 18, John is just rehashing what he said here about Jesus being full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, John 1, 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has revealed to us who the Father is. And so for Thomas and Philip who are saying, we don't have enough information, or we just need a little more information, Jesus is saying, take a deep breath, guys. I'm enough. You just need me. I have fully revealed the Father, and I am the complete way, and I'm going to provide the way. And if you look on me, you will be saved. And Jesus is enough not just for our salvation, but he's enough for us while we wait. Again, Things don't change once we become followers of Jesus, as if we're, this is the whole book of Galatians, if we're saved by faith, but then we have to do good works and do lots of things in order to be accepted by God. No, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, but you don't need to do anything else. Just believe in me. Just keep believing. I'm not going to be physically present with you, but you just need to believe and walk by faith. 
I admit that feels simplistic. I feel sometimes like that's not enough for me. What do you mean I just have to believe? But I, I, I think that's what Jesus is saying. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And what's the solution? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe what I've done. Believe that I am sufficient. Believe and trust my timing. Trust my plan. Trust my power. And it's about relationship. So as we await the return of Jesus, we have to trust his plan and his power. I think that's a good big idea. I think I could have also said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in Jesus. Do you hear those words maybe to your soul? Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus and what he said he will do. Brothers and sisters, is your heart troubled? Are you afraid? As simple as it sounds, believe in God, believe in Jesus, and know that faith, that belief, is not some sort of a crutch because we're weak and lame. It's much worse than that. (laughs) Faith is CPR because we're dead. Faith is an AED machine that's got to shock us back into life because we have no heartbeat. Faith is not weak. Faith brings eternal life because Jesus brings life to dead, hopeless, helpless, fearful, troubled people like me and like you. So we're all on this path. We all want to follow Jesus and wait as we wait for his return. And as we go, I just want to encourage you to walk in faith, to trust God's plan, trust God's power, even when you're confused and even when you're scared. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this text that is a deep breath for our souls and I pray that we would breathe it deeply all this week and even into next. Lord, give us further and further insight into all that you've said here to understand what you mean and what it means to walk by faith and to believe who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here that we can study it together and grow together. Help us to continue to do that. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.